biblically speaking, that we could talk about this topic of decision-making and the will of God. We could, we could dive into a systematic theological sermon on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We could, we could tackle all the passages in, in the book of Proverbs on the plans of God and man. And as one of our partners shared with me this past week when he found out that this is where we were going this morning, um, Tim Keller has a great sermon that gets after that. It's entitled, Your Plans, God's Plans. I listened to that sermon this week, was incredibly encouraged to know that nothing I'm going to say this morning is heretical. You can be encouraged by that. It has the Tim Keller stamp of approval, so we can move forward. But here's how I want to go after this thing this morning. Uh, not by way of a systematic theological sermon on divine sovereignty and human responsibility, not by way of unpacking the, the various proverbs that have to do with God's plans and our plans, though those ideas may end up in the form of a sermon at some point along the way. But this morning, what I want to do is come back around and further unpack something that I mentioned a few weeks ago in the Esther series regarding God's guiding of the Israelites in the wilderness. This morning's passage is part of the story of the Exodus, pretty, pretty big story in the Old Testament, in the history of God's people, the leading of the Israelites out of Egyptian enslavement on a journey to the promised land. If you recall the story, the Egyptians had been oppressing the Israelites for quite some time, roughly 400 years. And in his providence, God raised up Moses to command Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let God's people go. As we pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 13, we're right on the heels of the ten plagues. We're right on the heels of the celebration of the Passover. After 400 years of enslavement, the Israelites have been set free, but they've yet to cross the Red Sea. Picking up Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. You, you get the language of, of God leading his people here, which is a pretty common language that you find throughout scripture. The Psalms are filled with this kind of language on a number of occasions. Psalm 31 verse 3 says, for you are my rock and my fortress and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Or maybe perhaps more famous, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. One of, my, one of my favorite quotes from the late, great Martin Luther, he says to God in prayer, use me as your instrument, but do not forsake me, for if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. I found myself praying that on a number of occasions as a pastor. For Luther, the, the most terrifying prospect is God's abandonment. Maybe that's, perhaps that's something you bring into this place even this morning, the feeling that God's left you on your own. As we talked about in the Esther series, from within the story, we can't see what God is doing oftentimes. From within the story, it can seem as though God's timing is off. From within the story, it can seem as though he's forgotten us. Unlike the book of Esther, the book of Exodus offers us some narration, which for some of you, you're going, praise God. Like finally we get some narration after two months without it in the book of Esther. Which is helpful in showing us what God is up to as he leads his people out of Egypt. He doesn't map quest the journey, choosing the quickest route. He takes the Israelites the long way. You ever feel like that's what God's doing with you? 
taking you the long way, like you're sitting there going, God, if I was map questing this season of my life, I'm not sure that I would do it this way. This seems to, to be really uh, going kind of around my elbow to get to where we're, we're trying to get here. Based on this passage, let me offer just a few reasons why God might take us, quote unquote, the long way down a path that doesn't seem to make much sense from within the story. I'll give you a few possibilities. Number one, what may appear to be the best route may be a route that leads to bondage. Notice that the Israelites have lived for 400 plus years as slaves in Egypt, and God has just brought them out of that enslaving backdrop. And verse 17 tells us, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and what? Return to Egypt. To return to Egypt would, would have been to return to bondage, right? God doesn't want that for his people. The Exodus is a deliverance from bondage. That one of God's motivations for taking us the long way is to protect us from ourselves, from our own idolatrous hearts. And perhaps that's what he's doing even in this season of your life in terms of taking you down the path that he has you on. It's for your own sanctification. Secondly, what may appear to be the best route uh, may rob us of an opportunity to grow in dependence upon God. By going the longer route, God was able to establish in the Israelites a greater dependence upon him, which most of us understand, right? Where, where have you found yourself most dependent upon the Lord? Is it on the path of least resistance or the path riddled with challenges? And I think most every one of us in this room would say the second of the two. It's when we're in the the valleys of life that we find ourselves leaning most readily upon God. And so perhaps the path God has you on is his way of growing you in dependence upon him, leading to greater intimacy with him, which brings me to a third possibility. What may appear to be the best route may rob us of quote-unquote God moments. I mean, think about this. Back in Exodus chapter 3, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, the episode at the burning bush between Moses and God, we're told that God said to Moses, he said, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Mount Sinai, which by the way was on the longer route. Mount Sinai was on the longer route. There was an experience to be had with God there. To go the shorter route would have been to miss Mount Sinai. Perhaps the path that God has you on is his pursuing of intimacy with you. Perhaps he has a Mount Sinai moment that he wants to have with you. Number four, what may appear to be the best route may not best glorify God. That by going the longer route, God was able to lead the Israelites through the Red Sea, which could not have happened had they gone the shorter route. And you see the glory of God put on unique display when you read the story of God's parting of the Red Sea. It afforded God an opportunity to make himself look really good. Maybe God has you on the path he has you on in order to protect you from yourself. Maybe it's because he has intentions of drawing you into deeper dependence upon him and deeper intimacy with him. Maybe it's because he has a plan to put his glory on display in your life in a very unique way. John Curit, in his commentary on the book of Exodus, he says this. He says, how often God does not lead his people by what they perceive to be the easiest and shortest way. He knows our hearts. 
that they would falter in times of danger. Oh, how like the Israelites we are. Thus God will frequently take us by the long road in many things. In that way, he protects us from danger and destruction. His leading also has a didactic purpose to teach us to rely upon him and his timing. We think we know best. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And there he's quoting Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. That whatever, whatever his reason, God has a purpose for taking us down the path that he's taking us down. And as we go down the path that he has for us, he is with us every single step of the way, as we'll see in the, in the verses that ensue. Look at verse 20. It says, And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And we're told that God actually leads the Israelites by way of pillars of cloud and fire. Both cloud and fire are, are associated with the presence of God in the scriptures. And thus the pillars of cloud and fire are the very presence of the Lord among God's people. And, and God's presence was constant as we see even looking at verse 22. The pillar of cloud by day. The pillar of fire by night, neither of them departed from before the people. The God was always there. He was with his people every step of the way. When the pillar moved, the Israelites moved. When the pillar stopped, the Israelites stopped and set up camp. This is, this is incredibly different from what we see in the book of Esther, right? There are no pillars of cloud and fire in the lives of Esther and Mordecai, which is what was so frustrating at times to work through that story. There are no pillars of cloud and fire in our own lives. We feel that as we work through a book like the book of Esther, which leaves us with the question, how am I supposed to know what God wants me to do with my life? Or another way to ask it, what is God's will for my life? Nobody's asking that, right? Nobody's ever wrestled with that in this room. God's not showing up in the form of glory clouds for you and me. So how do we get an answer to the question that's constantly being asked in our culture? Well, first of all, I think we need to establish some clarity as to what we mean when we talk about the will of God. There are a few ways that, that theologians talk about God's will. Number one, the first way is to, to speak of God's decreed will, that which God has ordained, that which God in his sovereignty has purposed. God's decreed will cannot be thwarted. It will come to pass. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 says, in him we have or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We ha have been predestined according to the purpose of him who, listen to this, works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 and 10 say it this way, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That God's decreed will is absolute. It cannot be overturned. It's ultimately submitting ourselves to God's sovereign authorship of this story that we're a part of. But that's probably not what most of us mean when we talk about wanting to know God's will for our lives, right? Only God knows his decreed will. Only God is the great and powerful Oz standing behind the curtain with a, 
with a view of the tapestry that he's weaving together throughout redemptive history. And so there's another way that theologians talk about God's will, which is to talk about his desired will. God's desired will is that which God has commanded. God actually desires us to live a certain way. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good, listen to this, that you may do his will. And what is his will? A working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, namely the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Remember, he's just said, These are desires of the flesh and the pride of life. He says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there's a contrasting between the desires of the flesh and the will of God, meaning that we're talking about a following of the spirit. We're talking about an obedience to God's commandment. The the desired will of God is, is a walking in his statutes. It's a doing what's pleasing in his sight. Now, again, here's the reality. If someone came up to you and said, I know God's will for your life, love God, love others, love the Bible, repent of sin, point people to Jesus, serve others, and so forth and so on. If someone came up to you and said, that's God's will for your life, my guess is that many of us would probably say, that also is not what I mean. Most people, when they say, I want to know God's will for my life, What they're talking about is whether or not I should date this person or marry this person or take this job or pursue this degree or move to this city, which is what theologians refer to as God's directional will, meaning that simply the direction that our lives are to go. This is what most people mean when they say, I want to know God's will for my life. Most people aren't saying, I want to get behind the curtain I want to see everything that God has purposed from eternity past. Most people aren't saying, I want to know what God desires for me in terms of obedience to his commands, although we should give more consideration to God's desired will than we do. Most people are saying, I want to know if it's God's will for me to be with this person. I want to know if it's God's will for me to take this job, to hire this person, to send my kids to this school, to get this surgery done, to be a part of this church, and so forth and so on. And and most people are afraid that if they, quote unquote, get it wrong, they're going to end up with God's plan B for their lives. Gerald Sitzer, in his book, The Will of God is a Way of Life, he says this, He says, conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow, the one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we will receive his favor, fulfill our our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose rightly, we will experience his blessing and achieve success and happiness. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. 
anyone in this room feel the weight of that kind of pressure when decision-making time comes? That's the conventional way of thinking about the directional will of God. God has a plan, and it's up to me to figure it out. And if I don't, I will experience God's plan B for my life. Meanwhile, God in his cruelty refuses to part the clouds and tell me what that plan actually is. He refuses to speak audibly to me or write it on a wall in a dream or show up in a pillar of cloud or fire. I remember feeling the weight of this not too long ago as my wife and I were trying to sort through where to plant a church. We had gone through an incredibly rigorous process, several years in a church planting residency program, uh, walking through a church planting assessment process, including 150 double-spaced pages of pastoral and theological answers to questions, gone through all of those rigors, but could not come to a decision on where to plant. We went back and forth on it. We, We felt great anxiety We found ourselves paralyzed by the decision that was before us. I remember even at one point going, okay, God, we're not talking about what pair of socks to wear today. We're talking about where to plant a church so that you might be glorified and made much of so that the gospel might be advanced. So surely, I don't expect you to write it on a wall in someone's dream as to what socks they should wear tomorrow, but surely you would wanna do this for me in this moment because this is kind of a big deal. This is your church, right? I was paralyzed. Just felt like I could not move forward until God did that, until he somehow parted the clouds and gave me some sort of miraculous sign. What if that's not at all how God intends us to approach decision-making? Which brings up the question, well, what's the alternative? How, How do we determine who to date, who to marry, what college to go to, what degree to pursue, what company to work for, what church to be part of, what city to live in. And I really do believe it boils down to two things which you cannot escape in the Christian life. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And this is not an exhaustive list, but I'll just give you a few things in terms of those those two aspects of, of decision making. In terms of repentance, number one, we need to repent of our worry of not stepping out in faith because we're afraid we're gonna mess it all up. We need to repent of our visions of a perfect utopia, a life without challenges and hurdles. That's not the world we live in, right? We live in a a fallen, broken world, uh, and God intends to use challenges and struggles to create a deeper dependence upon him. You could say it this way. God moments, quote unquote, don't happen in a world in which you don't need God. God moments don't happen in a world in which there's always a safety net. God moments happen when we trust God and take risks for his glory. And we can trust him. Jesus said so in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, very famous passage. Beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now listen, I I understand that Jesus is not ultimately trying to unpack the anxiety uh, that has to do with decision making in this passage. This is ultimately more so about trusting in God's provision. But but what I want us to see here is, is simply this, that Jesus is declaring that God is not a cruel tyrant who's laughing about the fact that we live in a world without pillars of cloud and fire. That's not our God. Our God is a loving father who cares for us as his beloved children. We've been adopted in off the streets, out of the dumpsters of depravity. We've been given a home and a name. Your heavenly father loves you deeply. He's not a cruel tyrant. And thus we can repent of our worry, of our failure to trust him as a loving father. Secondly, we need to repent of waiting our lives away, some of us. As we've talked about in the Esther series, God is not likely going to show up in a pillar of cloud and fire to direct our steps. I wish I could tell you that my moment with the Lord declaring how significant the planting of a church is resulted in God actually writing a city name on a wall in a dream for me. He didn't do it. If I was still waiting on him to do that, I would not be standing on this stage right now pastoring this church and and helping to, to point it toward Jesus. Could God show up in a pillar of cloud and fire? Sure. Is that normatively the way he directs the steps of his people today? Not so much. If we wait for the pillar of cloud and fire, we just might be waiting our lives away. I shared this quote with you a few weeks ago in the Esther series, Kevin DeYoung. He says, our search for the will of God has become an accomplice in the postponement of growing up, a convenient out for the Christian floating through life without direction or purpose. Too many of us have passed off our instability, inconsistency, and endless self-exploration as, quote, looking for God's will, as if not making up our minds and meandering through life were marks of spiritual sensitivity. We, we, li- we actually live in a world where people are seen as more spiritually together for sitting on their hands for way too long, waiting for God to tell them what to do and doing nothing for his glory until he does so. DeYoung goes on to say, if we do nothing because we are always trying to figure out the perfect something, when it comes time to show what we did for the Lord, we will not have anything. In that regard, may we not be a people who wait our lives away, waiting for the the pillars of cloud and fire to show up. Number three, we need to repent of treating the Bible like a magic eight ball. Anybody remember this novel toy? Uh, you used to be able to purchase this thing. It was in the shape of a billiard ball. Uh, it looked like an eight ball, but it had a, a, a flattened side, a window that you could see through. And on the inside was water and, and a, uh, a multifaceted shaped thing that if you shook it, it would float to the surface and give you an answer to your questions. So should I marry Brooks? And then I shake the eight ball and it tells me what to do. And sometimes it would say, yes, you should do this. And other times, no. And then there were some answers that were like, Maybe you should shake the eight ball again, or uh, I'm indifferent to this question, and you would be angry at the eight ball, and you would shake it again, because that's not what an eight ball is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you true answers to your questions. 
And if we're honest, are there not times and moments of uncertainty that we treat the Bible like that? Christians are notorious for closing our eyes, opening the Bible, and alakazam, like wherever the finger lands, whatever page I open up to, this must be the answer in this moment of great uncertainty for me, which works really well until the day you seek God's will for your life, only to find that your finger lands on the story of Judas hanging himself. Then it doesn't work anymore, right? John Newton, the great hymn writer and pastor, he says, the word of God is not to be used as a lottery. Remember, Haman sought to cast lots and put his future into the, the hands of the gods of fate. The word of God is not to be used as a lottery, nor is it designed to instruct us by shreds and scraps, which detached from their proper places have no determinative import. But the Bible is written in context. It's meant to be read faithfully in context. The Bible is not a hodgepodge of pithy fortune cookie statements. The Bible is a great story of God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. Number four, we need to repent of prioritizing the directional will of God over the desired will of God. I mentioned this just a moment ago. The, the, the Bible says nothing about who we should marry specifically. My wife, her Brooks, her name is not in the Bible. The, the Bible says nothing about what job we should take specifically. Cross Point Peachtree City is not in the Bible by name. The Bible does say this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will is that you and I grow in godliness, that we grow to look more like Jesus, that in focusing on that, on God's desired will, the decisions that we make in terms of God's directional will are going to be filled with much more wisdom. We, we spend, or at least I know I do, exorbitant amounts of time thinking about jobs and relationships and, and next steps in life. But how often do we think about God's desired will and whether or not we're in line with that? There's, there's freedom in letting the desired will of God set the stage for the directional will of God in our lives. But it, as I mentioned, it's not just about repentance, but also trust. We need to trust that God is sovereign, wise, and good. We talk about this all the time around here. Again, going back to Isaiah chapter 46, God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We saw this God show up in the story of Esther. He's in control. We don't live in a universe in which uh, everything is spinning into complete chaos. We live in a universe that's in submission to a God who is cool, calm, and collected. He's not in a panic. And we can trust that he's got everything under control, including our lives. And he's not just sovereign. He's not just in control. He's good. And he's for our good. That God actually cares, going back to uh, the Israelites in Exodus chapter 13, he cares to orchestrate our lives in such a way that we grow in dependence upon and intimacy with him. He cares to orchestrate our lives in such a way that we grow to look more like Christ. Because that's what God's committed to, we can trust him with our lives. Secondly, we need to trust that God has given us the resources necessary to make wise decisions. God has given us a lot of gifts. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. He's given us his word. As we read the Bible, God's thoughts become our thoughts. God's passions become our passions. God's inclinations become our inclinations. And as that happens, we're going to make decisions in life that we can be increasingly confident will honor the Lord. 
In addition to his word, he's given us his people. Proverbs talks about this on numerous occasions. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Or Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Which makes it all the more incredibly kind that Jesus did not redeem us into isolation, but rather into a family. We've been rescued. And what that means is that we, we have been knit together to a people for whom the gospel is also their core commitment and for whom the glory of God is their ultimate goal. So that as we bring them alongside of us, we have gospel-centered, God-glorifying wisdom being infused into our very lives as we make decisions. A godly community that wants to see God exalted in your life is a gift. Another gift that God has given us is prayer. And not so that we'll spend most of our time asking him to show up in pillars of cloud and fire. Not so that we would spend most of our time asking him to part the clouds and audibly tell us what to do. But so that we might ask him to help us understand and apply those things that we're reading in his word. So that we might ask him to surround us with people who will speak gospel-centered, God-honoring wisdom into our lives. So that we might ask him to weed out our sinful motives and replace them with God-honoring motives in our decision-making. So that we might ask him for the wisdom that he gives freely. So that we might ask him to leverage our lives for his glory. We have the gifts of God's word, God's people, and prayer. God has been kind in giving us, and thus we have the resources necessary to make wise decisions. And I haven't even gotten to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Number three, we need to trust that God doesn't intend for us to live as a paralyzed, enslaved people. I mean, coming back to this morning's passage, the the very story of the Exodus is about God purchasing a people from enslavement, right? Right? The directional will of God should never be enslaving or paralyzing for God's people. Again, I quote Kevin DeYoung. He says, God never assures us of health, success, or ease, but he promises us something even better. He promises to make us loving, pure, and humble like Christ. In short, God's will is that you and I get happy and holy in Jesus. I love this. He says, so go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere, in something, with somebody or nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And literally, he says, for God's sake, for his glory, start making some decisions in your life. This might sound a bit shocking to some. I'm going to say it anyway. I could have married a thousand different women on planet earth and had a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, fruitful marriage. Now, my wife is not here this morning. We have sick kids, and you might be thinking, is he saying that because she's not here? And I'm not. You could go to her and ask her, uh, in light of what I'm sharing with you this morning, uh, how do you feel about that? And she would affirm everything that I'm saying this morning. Some people freak out when they hear that. What about, what about the one? The one? How do you know you're with the, the person God intended you to marry? How do you know? And the answer is because in the words of the great theologian Beyonce, I put a ring on it. That's how I know. We're, we're caught up in a culture that's so fixated on hyper-romanticism that we're afraid to do anything until we know that we know that we know that we know. 
So let me, let me put to rest the notion that you can only have a happy marriage if you discern God's decreed will, if you peel back the veil, so to speak. If you find the one person on planet Earth that, that God considers to be your perfect match, you could marry a thousand different people, assuming you're not married, and have a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, fruitful marriage. So how did Brooks and I decide to get married? Answer, we read the Bible. The Bible says in the words of C.S. Lewis, Jamie, you're a son of Adam, so marry a daughter of Eve. You're a Christian, so go for one of those. We, we sought godly counsel. We asked friends and family, are we good for each other? Do we sharpen one another? Do we cause one another to love Jesus more? We prayed about it. Not that God would audibly tell us whether or not to do it, um, but rather that God would weed out the sinful motives in our hearts for wanting to get married, that God would give us wisdom in moving forward, that God would use us collectively to bring him glory in a way that we couldn't bring him glory individually. And then I put a ring on it, plain and simple. Again, coming back to Kevin DeYoung one last time, he says this. I love this. He says, the only chains God wants us to wear are the chains of righteousness, not the chains of hopeless subjectivism, not the shackles of risk-free living, not the fetters of horoscope decision-making, just the chains befitting a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Die to self, live for Christ, and then do what you want and go where you want for God's glory. Last three words are big there, by the way. For God's glory. But as you consider that, isn't that liberating? Doesn't that sound like what God did with his people in leading them out of Egypt? You don't, we don't need a pillar of cloud and fire. We, we talked about this in the Exodus or in the Esther series. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, God himself leads you and guides you and is with you every step of the way. John 14, 17, you know him, the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you, Jesus says. We have the indwelling third person of the Godhead guiding us. That's so much better than a pillar of cloud and fire. Be encouraged that, that we don't worship a cruel tyrant who's laughing about the fact that we live in a world without pillars of cloud and fire. We worship a God who loves us and is for us and will do whatever it takes to make our hearts happy in him. The question is, do you believe that? Because if so, you're free to shed the chains of hopeless subjectivism, to use DeYoung's words. You're free to shed the shackles of risk-free living. You're free to shed the fetters of horoscope decision-making, free to step out and take some risk for God's glory, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he's for you, knowing that he will do whatever it takes to make your heart happy in him. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to receive communion, which brings us back around to the gospel. Remember, remember this morning's passage is, is the story of the Exodus, the leading of the Israelites out of Egyptian enslavement on a journey to the promised land, the story of a wilderness generation on pilgrimage. We talked about this in the Hebrews series. The church, it's you and me, we're the new wilderness generation on pilgrimage, heading toward the promised land, the new heaven and earth. You and I, we're part of a new exodus established by the blood of Jesus, a greater rescue, not from Egypt, but from Satan, sin, and death. Jesus... Get your mind around this. If you've made any foolish decisions in life whatsoever, Jesus died for every bad decision you ever have made and ever will make. Isn't that good news? Not only that, 
It's because of Jesus that we have the hope of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that without Jesus, there is no indwelling Spirit to guide us. It's because of Jesus that we have a family of faith to come alongside us. Without Jesus, there is no body of Christ informing our lives with wisdom. It's because of Jesus that we have access to the throne of grace, going back to the Hebrews series, that we can approach God confidently in prayer because the veil has been torn. You see how significant the gospel truly is as it pertains to making decisions in the world that we live in and know? One final thought regarding the gospel. We've talked about this before. Apart from the gospel, you really only have two choices, which is to live in the land of pride or despair. Pride when you think you're achieving well in life and despair when you feel like you're failing. And that means that your decisions can only be rooted in pride or despair which is a terrifying lens to look through as it pertains to making some of the bigger choices in life. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel declares that we're far more sinful than we ever imagined, which humbles us, yet we're far more loved than we ever dared dream, which emboldens us. So that the gospel doesn't lead to pride, nor does it lead to despair. Rather, it leads to confident humility. And thus, the gospel empowers us to make decisions that are rooted in confidence and humility both.